Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of The Media Beat. That's right, we have made it to episode two, as we always thought we would, because people are liking what we're doing, which is always lovely, as ever. Um, with me are Maureen Kerr, who, as I'm sure you know, is um, a, a partner with ADL, uh, AD Little Consulting, and she leads the media practice for ADL. Her job is to advise firms on media strategy and also to advise private equity firms where to invest in the wonderful world of media. And with her, as always, is Claire Tavernier, and she is a commentator on all things media from A to Z, has been around the industry more years than you would think just by looking at her. Uh, and of course, she does consultancy as well uh, for startups, small to medium enterprises and the big boys too. It is great to see you both again. Ladies, hello. Hello, Oliver. Hi, Oliver. Hi. So we've got quite a lot to get through uh, in this uh, in this episode and some really interesting discussions to have um, in preparation for this. I've learned an awful lot and I'm very glad to say some of it is a bit techy as well, which is always exciting for a, um, I guess, nerd is probably the polite way of putting it. But we had a conversation, didn't we, in the week, um, Claire, about um, YouTube piracy and maybe um, that some people... Um, misrepresent the idea that you can sling anything on YouTube and therefore copyright is is, is sort of like the Wild West and copyright is not respected. But I, I think your view is far more nuanced than that in that, um, you know, YouTube's been a long, around a long time and uh, has sort of got its head around this issue more than some people might think. Yes, it was interesting. Maureen sent me a podcast, didn't you, Maureen? I, 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 did, indeed. I did indeed. I did indeed. It, it upset you greatly, so this is uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah, and now, uh, Mr. Scott Galloway, Prof G, Prof G's uh, podcast of the week. Yeah, Claire got very upset, and uh, uh, yeah, one of the callers, uh, Ben, uh, was intimating that, uh, that 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 the studios uh, are putting up content onto YouTube, um, and uh, it's uh, it's way ahead of uh, the. Um, uh, the, the sort of you know period the windowing um and people are not paying for it and it's all about piracy and that is not the case is it claire that is not the case no it was interesting you you texted me Maureen, and said maybe we could talk about youtube and piracy and i i was very surprised because i thought i said to you i, I said we can but i'm pretty sure that that conversation happened in 2007 and really hasn't happened since so a long time ago uh and uh and you then sent me this podcast and in the podcast uh one of uh scott galloway's listeners is angry because he thinks there are pirated versions of his favorite shows on youtube before they air in the uk these are us shows and um scott galloway doesn't contradict him and he piles it on and just says this is typical of bit i mean you know obviously he has a point of view on big tech uh and he uses this as an argument against youtube and i think that is very misinformed i know it's misinformed but also i think it's it's a bit um silly because there are definitely lots of things you can say about youtube so you know it's not like we we lack arguments to criticize youtube on many many things but this is one where they have actually done enormous efforts successfully to uh, stop piracy. And they did it not out of the goodness of their hearts. They did it because it was a revenue generator, both for them and for their studios. And they also did it to some extent because the studios, Viacom especially, were suing them for piracy and they had to do something. And so in, in 2007, uh, they created and they launched a system called Content ID, which is a fingerprinting system that will allows any content owner to upload a file, either video or audio, and any content uploaded to YouTube will be matched to that file. And then it's up to the content owner to decide what they want to do. They can choose to have it taken down immediately, which, you know, if you look for Game of Thrones content on YouTube, for instance, you won't find it because HBO is very with good reason, very protective of, 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 of Game of Thrones, they could say, 
if the length of the content is less than three minutes, I'll allow it, but not if it's longer, if you know, you're happy for people to post clips of your content. Or they could say, we are okay to keep it up, but we want to claim it as ours because it is ours. And therefore, if there is money to be made, if, if YouTube is serving advertising, we want to take some of that money. Thank you very much. Which is what we used to do at Fremantle when I was working there. And we, you know, Fremantle, amongst others, made a lot of money out of claiming clips of X Factor, Idol, Got Talent that users were uploading. Uh, similarly, music companies tend to do that. They say, you know, fine, users can use our music in their in their videos. We don't mind, but uh, we'll take that money. Thank you very much. And we'll claim the, cl claim the music and take the money. Now, the content data technology wasn't perfect at the beginning. And if you remember those golden years, people were flipping videos. So suddenly, you know, what was right was left, etc. because those were all ways of, of trying to uh, fool the system. They were... Sometimes they, they put the voice higher pitched because that's a way to fool the audio recognition. So there, there were a lot of strategies. Sometimes they try to move the video up and down, which tends to make you quite seasick if you're watching it. But again, for, for some time was uh, fooling the system. To be honest, the content ID system at the moment is really excellent. It would be very hard to put up any kind of content that the content owners doesn't want, don't want up there. Um, and have it go through. And therefore, the fact that, you know, those shows, John Oliver, Bill Maher, are in 4K quality on YouTube doesn't mean that it's pirated. It means that the studios have decided that because this is, you know, very um, transient topical content, they are quite happy to have it up there and use it as marketing for the show. And frankly, they probably don't sell it to Sky for much money and they're very happy to... Um, and Sky is probably okay with the fact that it's over there. I'm assuming this is a conversation they've had because this is a conversation you have always, always, always when you do any kind of library deal. So, yeah, that on this one, the poor old Scott was misinformed, I'm going to say. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> that's a very passionate topic of yours, um, Claire, and I, I was so glad when I heard the response, slightly sort of vague and uh, misinformed and, and somewhat misleading as well. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, as you know, um, you know, back in sort of, you know, uh, let's say 2010, maybe 20, 2011, um, an entire mini industry was spawned out of the content ID um, uh, technology. Um, and that meant that, uh, certainly for RTL and Fremantle, uh, it meant that it was able to invest in a couple of companies, and one in particular, which is Canadian-based company, Broadband TV, did that very thing that you were describing, which basically were to survey the uh, the YouTubes and the other platforms uh, to see how content was being used and viewed um, to enable uh, content owners and rights owners to uh, legitimately uh, go to the platforms and share with them uh, viewership share with them sort of, you know, the visibility beyond sort of the three minutes and claim uh, and claim revenue against that. So, you know, there's a legitimate industry there. Uh, YouTube, for the reasons that you specified, you know, is it's a revenue generator and they do not want to piss off, excuse me, our French, do not want to piss off the studios that create the content and put it up in the first place. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, were able to technically uh, defend your position there, uh, Claire, because I, 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 I do think it was very misleading. And something that I've sort of been grappling with, but, um, uh, you know, to sort of back back to a lot of people that the platforms are being, you know, looked at quite carefully uh, and diligently. And I think they are doing the right thing. Um, at the Enders conference yesterday, Ben was there, Ben Ben Owen uh, Wilson. It's Ben Owen Wilson. Is it on Game? Michael, him. Michael Owen Wilson, yeah, Ben Michael Owen Wilson. Yeah, yeah. And he was, uh, he was also saying uh, something quite similar, um, the, uh, the whole piracy uh, argument uh, uh, did flare up at the uh, the conference yesterday, and uh, he was defending uh, YouTube with the uh, the specific technology that you're referring to, the fingerprinting content ID. So, yeah, I mean, to be fair, quite... other other platforms, have, you know, YouTube was the first, and at the time it should have been because it was by a very long shot the the largest video platform. But Facebook has very similar tools. Uh, if you've ever tried to upload a homemade video with music in the background on Facebook, it will have uh, refused to upload it because their music hasn't been cleared. It's actually in many ways stricter than YouTube uh, because for various reasons. Uh, so it, it will let uh, legitimate content owners upload videos, but it's not letting users uh, 
or it's it's restricting users using um, pirated videos. It's a really interesting topic because when uh, way back when I first started working with YouTube, again, I was at Fremantle and this was around the Susan Boyle time. And obviously mm -hmm. Susan Boyle was this, this moment in YouTube's history where suddenly this video went incredibly viral. I mean, I can't remember now where we got to in terms of millions of views, but it was, it was insane. And we had various people around the table not sure what we should be doing about it because technically it was pirated. We, you know, Fremantle didn't put up this clip, ITV didn't put up this clip, somebody found the clip. Not only that, they actually edited it, which uh, the producer was most put off about, uh, and, uh, and then put it up. But equally, it was the best marketing campaign for both the show, Susan Boyle and her future recording career, the, the format itself, which got a lot of sales on the back of Susan Boyle. Uh, and I, I remember sitting in endless meetings where lawyers were like, well, we should take it down. And people were like, yeah, maybe, you know, wait a few weeks. And I was sitting there going, we need to claim it because if we do a deal with YouTube and we claim it, it's still up there. It's still doing great things, but we're also earning money from all these millions of views. And we got there in the end, but it, it was a very, uh, um, it was a complicated process because it was it was a, a, a bit of a paradigm shift for a lot of people in television. Do you think that set the precedent? Um, do you think that's a sort of set set the precedent for um, a decision making around to remove or to leave? Because there's a whole big discussion about what you should remove, and there's a reluctance to remove content, um, even if it is you know um, you know toxic or or uh, deflammatory in any way, there is a, you know, it's, 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 it's an important decision to remove. Um, do you think yeah, that's I mean, it? Yeah, I think uh, it set a precedent. Uh, I think it set the precedent from uh, a content owner's point of view that short clips of your content is, are probably, ha you know, having them up there is probably more of a benefit than a threat. And that was, that was the big paradigm shift. Having fans upload short clips, and then the definition of short is, is an interesting one as always. Uh, and it doesn't have to be you uploading the clips. And that was the big change. It, you know, there was always a th sense that you could have your own YouTube channel and upload the clips. And if we have time, I can tell you a story about, um, I think it was American Idol, actually. When they started, we were pushing them, obviously. We were the production company. We were pushing Fox to use YouTube because we'd seen in the UK and in, in fact in all of Europe how how useful it had been beyond even revenues just as a marketing campaign and they start they said oh we don't want anything that we haven't put up you know we have to take down everything that users upload but we will put up clips but their super smart idea was that they would put up the audition but not the judges comments because they were thinking that um, that the the viewers would then go to their website to watch the judges comment because of course that's the issue for broadcasters they want people to go to their own website to watch the videos well that was a disaster because that's not how youtube works when you are in the youtube and as with all those social networks there's so much stickiness on the platform that all people did was just go and watch some other clip from another show rather than continue uh, to, on to Fox. So there was a lot of discussions around this. So I do think it was a step, uh, definitely, and, 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 a, and a recognition of the value of YouTube. I think also it was quite a moment in YouTube's history where they absolutely refused, which is a position that they've held, to define themselves as a publisher. And so, you know, putting the content idea system at the, um, uh, you know, uh, making it available to content owners was saying, there you go, it's your problem now. And that's been very much YouTube's position. We will provide you with the tools, but we don't know what's on the platform. We can't be held responsible for what's on the platform. If you want to use the tools, that's absolutely within your right, and we are providing with the right tools. Uh, and that's... You know, that is more the reason why they won't take things down that are dangerous or toxic or, you know, inciting to hatred or any of these things, because they have to stick to the legal position that they don't know what's up there. And it, as soon as they start taking things down from editorial reasons, they become a publisher and they, that changes their legal position completely. Has that, though, changed given that they uh, initiated um, and, and then stopped? 
the uh, YouTube originals and or subscriptions packages that, that that they clearly weren't able to get anything beyond just a one million the one million mark for subscribers. Is that though because of that change their the definition of what YouTube is and becomes more actually a curator and therefore you know uh, and a moderator um, and with moderation you comes responsibility. And therefore, you know, you will need to take down and remove. Um, what's, your, what's your view on that, Claire? I think there are different views within YouTube. Uh, and I think there were slightly contradictory approaches. But I think uh, in the originals program is one of them. And the subscription is, is, was the attempt to create a world garden within which they would accept the responsibility of content. But, you know, as soon as we came out of the subscription world garden, then there wasn't any more responsibility. Um, I have had discussions when I was at Channel Flip, which was a YouTube um, studio. I have had a discussion with YouTube about removing content. So I know that they have occasionally looked at things and decided that it had to be removed. But it's not a systematic approach. And I think if you went to the most senior levels of the organization, you would find a very strongly held belief that they are a platform, not a publisher. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that when we're talking about um, the things I took is that this, this um, content ID, which sort of puts a, 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 a fingerprint on a piece of content, right? And it, and it does that both to protect uh, the owner or the the um, originator of that content from being ripped off, basically. But it also gives them the power to get payment um, for what is what is due due to them. Um, so there's it's a sort of sort of win win in that sense. Just going on a techie nerdy question: Is it? Um, I don't want to talk about hash algorithms. Just in a sec, I'll mention it just so that people think I know what I'm talking about. But um, I, I guess this unique fingerprint. Um, I remember. Uh, well, I still use Shazam a lot, which which uh, you play. Obviously, you play a, a clip of music into your phone, and then the Shazam algorithm works out exactly what piece of music that is and what mix of that music is because it's actually matching a waveform digitally or something. It's absolutely brilliant. This is a sort of similar sort of technology which says this piece of content has this, in quotes, fingerprint, so we can definitely see that it's out there and being used and therefore can either be taken down or paid for. Is that the kind of thing? But the, there seems to be some subtle difference between the way Shazam does it and the, and, the, and the reason for Shazam doing it versus the reason a platform like YouTube would do it. Yeah, it's, I mean, as far as I know, and I'm not that much into the technical side of it, but it is the same, the same basic technology. Uh, YouTube took it in a slightly different direction, partly because it had to be incredibly fast, as, as is Shazam, but even faster in some ways. And uh, so for, for YouTube, it was, you know, it had to be incredibly fast. It had to recognize images, if it, even if they had been slightly distorted and, you know, what were the distortions that were acceptable. Uh, whereas Shazam's technology development focused very much on recognizing music, even if there was a lot of ambient noise. And that's, you know, that's the beauty. So they took the same, yes, hash algorithm uh, technology, which reduces your file to a very specific fingerprint that's much faster to compare than just the entire file, as far as I understand it. Uh, but, but they then took that bits of technology into slightly different directions. I remember talking to the Shazam people and for them, the main issue is that people Shazam in noisy environments and they still have to recognize the music. So a lot of their work is spent on, you know, identifying the music track within a very noisy environment. That's, that's the, the key focus of, well, one of the key focuses of their, of their work, whereas whether YouTube took the same elements, uh, but moved them into a slightly di different direction. There's an irony as well, right, as you were talking about this podcast that enraged you, and I can understand why now, because it's, it's, it's sort of fake news in a sense, because it's a... It's completely it's a, fake news. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to get you upset again, but it's, um, it's, it's like... Uh, it's taken us, Oliver, it's taken us a week to get her to calm down. <laughs> please don't, don't. Please I just don't. find it so annoying, because 
God knows there are things that don't work at YouTube. You know, I have no, there is a huge issue around content moderation. There's a huge issue around kids and kids content and protecting them. And, you know, there's a big issue around what sort of advertisers they leave on the platform. Monetization is still incredibly poor. You know, God knows there are things we could talk about on YouTube. And this one, it just isn't one. So why pick on this one? It's just, ah, Well, because, really of course, me. ironically, <laughs> because it's good news, isn't it? Nasty, big, yeah. money-making YouTube is ripping people off. It's a much better story than YouTube are actually a pioneer and therefore one of the best at, at controlling this. Not a good story. But that's not what the media beat is about, is it? The media beat is about telling the truth. And that's what we will always do. So shame on Scott Galloway who, for actually pumping out fake news, saying YouTube isn't <laughs> protecting us from fake news. He should be called the Paradoxical Podcast. Very naughty. Um, fascinating stuff, though. I, I suppose there's implications on other platforms as well. Uh, I mean, TikTok, famously, of course, uses other people's music to show men of my age dancing with their daughters that's that's a that's a that's a, a very niche but uh, it's something that i've managed to do uh, i suppose there's something there about copyright you can get a million views on tiktok using maybe a michael jackson track or whatever and who, who gets the who gets the credit for that so first of all i think maureen and i both want to see that video uh, we do. <laughs> i was just about to ask that you'd be surprised you'd be surprised maybe now publicly shamed your daughter look yes yeah uh, this would be wonderful we can't wait yeah uh so yeah. we need to see the video i think uh tiktok and snapchat started that really but tiktok put it took it to a different scale it's a much more proactive way of generating revenues for in this case music creators which is to say um license us your content, license us your music, and then we'll put it up on the platform and other people may use it as a, as a soundtrack to their videos. And that has been a huge revenue, revenue generator for artists or rights owners in music. And also, uh, we were talking about this a little bit in the last episode, it's become a huge discovery platform because people are using old songs, not necessarily new songs, and they're becoming viral. And the, the Fleetwood Mac example is probably the most well-known. There was a video uh, of a really weird, slightly older guy doing skateboarding uh, on uh, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. And that became this huge viral sensation on, on TikTok. I'll send you the video, Oliver. I can see you want to see it. Uh, and it and it spawned millions of, you know, answers, re, recasting, da, da, da. and Fleetwood Max music got played on all platforms, not only TikTok, much more than it had been for decades, I suspect, uh, which is great because it's great music. But yes, it's it's opened up a completely new market for for uh, music rights owners. And it's partly behind this explosion of value of old music catalogs. And the fact that it's just great music, like you said, lovely to hear Fleetwood Mac again. Uh, please send me that video. My, uh, my son went viral uh, on a TikTok and it, it was well it's very strange how TikTok what, what goes viral they got one point no 2.4 million views of this thing of basically five young people looking hungover and for some reason that that hit a nerve um you know most of the videos got like, like 40 or 50 and this got 2.4 million I can't quite understand why something goes so it's almost like volatile it's almost like a uh, it's almost like a virus <laughs> which is supposed to say it goes viral I guess um Oliver, really... here's a question for you. Actually, yeah. on that point, sorry to interrupt you, Oliver. Sorry, really? sorry to do that. But uh, if you if you think about it, because um, you asked the question, we do not know what will go viral. You know, and this hit-driven, well, it's always been in a hit-driven film, TV, music market. Nobody knows. Nobody can predict really. Um, and I just wonder, well, to some extent, uh, and I just wonder whether or not all the data scientists, and in particular, ADL houses some fine. Uh, uh, fine PhDs, uh, data scientists and professionals, Michael Aiden being one of them and Michael Papadopoulos. Mm. I just like Sam Papadopoulos uh, being the mm -hmm. second that for predictive analytics or predictive, you know, um, uh, to enable you know, organizations, either talent agencies or music or film TV to figure out whether or not, you know, there is a trend, there is some sort of, you know, level of prediction that something will go viral. Um, I, I don't know how far or, or deep, uh, one, we've been able to take it at ADL, or two, the industry are using data scientists to do this. I don't know. Claire, I don't know if I you've discovered anyone. Or yeah. Oliver, have you seen any sort of output on some of these uh, projects? Uh, 
I was on the board of a music company called Instrumental, whose whole purpose was to discover music artists before they became viral by scouring Spotify data. Uh, and they did to some extent. And I think what they would have told you is they may not be able to, to predict the next Taylor Swift, but they would be able to predict the next would be Taylor Swift, the next artist that was going to be a sort of yeah. at least a, a, a medium sized success. Uh, and sometimes they got lucky and, and actually predicted the, the, the big ones. But it was it was all about data science and it was all about looking not specifically about as I, as I remember it, it wasn't only about plays, as in this song is getting more plays. It was about trends. It was about what who was added to what playlist. And, you know, for instance, they said they could have, they spotted that Phoebe Bridges, who's become huge, obviously, since then, you know, they spotted her when she was starting to come up. So they were looking at things in that way. And another example is uh, Ben McCohen Wilson, who uh, we talked about earlier, who uh, works at YouTube, told me once, that even though Gangnam Style was obviously the first huge, massive hit from South Korea, their data scientists at YouTube had started to see that Korean content was moving beyond borders. And they were seeing that South Korean content was being played in the region, not in Europe, not in the US, but you know, it had it started being purely in South Korea. And then suddenly Japan was listening to it. And then Asia was listening to it. And it, you could see its footprint slowly, slowly growing. And so suddenly they were expecting one breakthrough artist to suddenly, you know, jump to the big leagues, whether they could have guessed that it was going to be Gangnam Style. Probably not, but the, the, the data was telling them something's going to happen there. So I think it's less precise than saying we can spot the next, the next Taylor Swift, we can spot the next Michael Jackson. And it's more about saying something's going to happen from where coming out of South Korea, and we don't know what that's going to look like, but it's going to be really, really, really big. And maybe uh, with time, it's going to get more precise. So there's definitely there are definitely people working on it, and it's a big... It's a really fascinating data science area, and um, some of it has that to do with tribes as well. Yes, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, you, you, uh, you, what, what you say is very uh, um, in line with what I've experienced with data science in business, in that you, you, you can do the analysis based on what's happened before, i.e. Uh, finding the next Korean K-pop band or finding the next Taylor Swift, but those seismic shifts, which require um, something that, that moves in a strange direction makes me feel like I don't think AI will discover hip hop or I don't think AI will discover no, exactly. drill, or I don't think or, or, or reggae or any new style of music, um, which is probably. But it may spot it drive. early. So I think actually AI would have spotted drill, may have actually yeah. spotted drill because they would have seen that, you know, from a very small tribe of active listeners it was starting to touch on slightly different groups of people and which is which is where you know something's going to go viral is when it moves out of its natural tribe if you see what i mean golly it really is like a virus isn't it it's like um covid19 moving from wherever it moved from bats monkeys one of those animals um I want to move on just quickly we, we also talked earlier in the week about um, sort of rights management and how complicated it gets uh, and how the idea of being able to trace the ownership, and there's a real parallel in the chemicals industry, in the manufacturing industry, funnily enough, and the food industry, about pressing, about um, about w where things come from, uh, and, and, and in sort of ethics as well. It's something ethically sourced when it comes to make a cake or whatever it is, all those ingredients. So there's a complicated uh, milieu, if you like, of things that make a product. And we were talking about how you've got the originator of content and then that content can be changed in the music context i guess it's a remix and they can be used in loads of different ways and you're explaining the complexities of managing um who should basically get paid because who's created that thing whatever it is and we started talking in parallels about sort of subprime mortgages and financial instruments being mashed together and the ownership question becoming more complicated um and uh, uh, uh uh, um, then we talked about you know sort of NFTs and stuff and sort of the ownership of digital things which have no physical um, manifestation. It all gets a bit complex, basically. Is the message I was getting. Um, certainly, a number of our clients are talking to us from the studios or from uh, distributors and aggregators around you know uh, metaverse and Web three and what's you know these uh, non fungible tokens 
you know, one mean to how we can, you know, uh, uh, you know leverage our brands, leverage our formats, our programming, um, and really talk to our, you know, our fan base and our, and our communities. Um, but from a sort of, you know, the point that, that, that we're all raising was around the complexity uh, and, and also this sort of form of tagging, um, you know, clearly blockchain does uh, enable, I, I'm going to simplify the language here, you know, tagging and identification and tracing of, 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 of a digital asset across the system and across the metaverse. However, we still haven't really understood or developed a framework, a legal framework to really point towards um, uh, intellectual property ownership which is also an issue and also very complicated outside of the metaverse in the real world, uh, as it is in the, in the metaverse, which is, to say, very complicated. So the article, Claire, that you and I read, uh, authored by um, a Reed Smith lawyer, Nick Bream, um, was uh, very interesting in, in saying that we are starting to see trading of digital assets where it isn't as clear as to the rights or the uh, use of uh, and the exploitation of a term that we use in the film and tv industry of that digital asset so you know the analogy oliver that you you have uh, you have raised which is the subprime uh, mortgage uh, environment or, or we could also call it pyramid schemes you know and the like is it's what sort of foundation is this built on and almost a sort of derivatives and securitization of assets is is going to be an issue and something as I say that, that, that the legal infrastructure or the legal framework has yet to be put in place to protect um, owners or traders in that metaverse environment. Um, and I think that's sort of thing that we we were touching on, um, but but certainly that's catching up, um, and, and and everyone sort of you know watched to see this, um, uh, and I think it will be in the small print, but we need to educate, you know, the, the equivalence of a retail trader, <laughs> you know, of what of what, of what they're actually buying, uh, of what they can actually use it for, and where does it go? So yeah, at the moment it is slightly sort of wild west, um, which, is, which is concerning. Um, and a lot of people are making money, but also, you know, the market I think is catching up on that because as we saw over the last couple of weeks, some of the uh, NFTs of flatlining by way of uh, by way of value and pricing. But Claire, I don't know what uh, your opinion was on around that. So if it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's very much what you said. And yes, the crypto crash of the last couple of weeks has been a sign, I think, of this of the fact that there isn't a solid foundation. It's not to say it wouldn't it won't come back stronger, but I think it does need it does need more foundation i'm going to say rather than regulation because regulation is always a big word but it, at the moment people can buy an nft of let's say a clip of pulp fiction which is the example everybody gives and they don't know and a lot of people won't understand what they've actually bought is it the right is it the ownership is it the license to use you know are there any uh, rights owners that need to be paid is there any back-end payments that need to be and you know that nft specifically that clip of i don't i don't know any details about it but it's going to be sold on and on and on as if it were a piece of of art and when you do buy a piece of art you, you buy all of it you own it forever but when you buy a clip of pulp fiction it's a more complicated uh, ownership structure and i think people don't understand that because why would they uh, you know, it's a very complicated market uh, and that will create problems down the line if, if it's not sorted one way or another. No, it's great. Interesting to watch this. This You're buying nothing. And crypto, you're, you're sort of buying a promise. And, and NFTs, you're sort of buying a, a, a pattern of a pattern of bits that no one else has got. I, I, it's very, very strange to get my head around. Um, moving on to UMG. So UMG results. Uh, and what your interpretation of, well, what they were, for starters, and what your interpretation of them is. Um, start with you, maybe, Maureen? Yeah, I, I think I think the um, it probably follows on from the conversations that we had last uh, last week, which is all around uh, the noise of, uh, you know, Netflix's results, actually, which were um, uh, all around, you know, the perpetual growth and aspirations in um, baked into the valuation of Netflix. And so even though we saw uh, a small dip in subs subscriptions um, 
or cancellations of subscriptions, uh, 0.09% or something like that, we saw a, a disproportionate uh, drop in the valuation um, of 35% of the share price, which is sort of reflects more the Wall Street or, or, or the street generally, or the, you know, the, the markets, uh, that there's an expectation that you know, subscribers will just continue uh, infinite, you know, um, and that's not the case. And the reason I mention that is, is, is that, again, Wall Street uh, at its best <laughs> was trying to use the same arguments for uh, the music industry um, around uh, subscriptions and uh, uh, music and fans that, you know, look to either Spotify or, or, or the music platforms more broadly. Um, and were they then therefore, you know, at some risk of, 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 of cancellations of, of those subscriptions? And, and it's interesting, both Spotify uh, results as well as the UMG uh, results conference calls, uh, the CEOs used the same argument to defend uh, their positions. And in fact, I was at the Enders conference yesterday and the publishers so from FT through to future PLC uh, and even Le Monde uh, were also talking about the fact that even in this squeeze, so this fiscal tightening, uh, we may not necessarily see the same uh, fall off in subscriptions because the consumer from music to passionate uh, interest lovers to, 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 to watching film and TV are different. They behave differently. Um, and, and I love this phrase that they use, which was, which is really around, you know, the stickiness uh, of, of, of music lovers, the behaviours of music lovers. We cannot sort of, you know, put them in the same categorization as, uh, as, as, as film and TV watchers. Um, so, so I, I was encouraged by the, uh, the, the results. I think, I think we've get, we're getting live back and touring. And I think UMG will see the, you know, good, good, strong results from that. Um, yeah, the, the, generally, the, the, you know, the numbers were, were slightly down, but, um, but I, I actually think, and I, as I say, I was, I was really encouraged by the reaction of the, of the two companies to the market to say, do not, do not taint us with the same brush here. It's not, it's not the same. And I know, uh, again, sort of music streaming and music is very much your Ballywick, um, uh, Claire, and uh, I think you were nodding your head uh, uh, quite uh, quite fiercely, quite fiercely, actually, <laughs> but with poise um, <laughs> at, uh, at, 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 at that state, at those series of statements. So uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pass that over to you, actually, because I, I, as I say, I, I, I don't think that the music industry is in any way in any trouble. Um, and I think we're going to see a very healthy, you know, sort of uh, upward swing um uh, personally, but that's uh, but I'm not I'm not encouraging people to invest. I'm just simply saying, you know, that that's a, a good trajectory and and I think a, a, a nice direction of travel for for the music industry. Yes, should we say that UMG is Universal Music Group? Does everybody know that? I'm just uh, yeah. Oh yes, you I, should. I, I Never <laughs> use abbreviations unless you know it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty obvious, I think. But then I am. <laughs> we are all sort of plunged in this industry. So yes, Universal Music Group, uh, the largest, I think, music publisher in the world. Um, I think it's absolutely 100% true that music consumption uh, on Spotify and content consumption on Netflix have very little to do with each other. Um, I remember going back to YouTube uh, a few years ago, YouTube wasn't really entirely, they, they didn't publish it, publicize that, that fact a lot, but kids' content on YouTube was bigger than music. So there's, there's been this idea that, you know, most of YouTube is, is, is actually people watching music video clip, which is true. It's a big part of what people do on YouTube. But actually, I don't know if that's still the case. Probably is. Most of the views were coming, like, I think something like half of the views on YouTube were coming from preschool content of various qualities, some of it being put up by kids' content owners, like Peppa Pig was enormous. Uh, some of them was original YouTube. But when you talk to the YouTube kids people, they would tell you the reason is repeat viewing. That episode of Peppa Pig, that child, that one child will watch that episode of Peppa Pig 
50 times in one month. Whereas most people don't watch video content in that way. They might watch it once. They may watch it twice. Certainly on Netflix, you know, not, not much content gets rewatched over and over again. But music consumption follows the same pattern, which is if you like a song, you may well listen to it, you know, 10, 12 times a day. I mean, when I see my kids and Taylor Swift, I think, wow, you know, but uh, it's, um, so it's true. It's a very, very different pattern of consumption. You because there's a lot of repeat, uh, repeat consumption of the same content. You don't run out of things to listen to uh, when you're listening to music on Spotify. You just go back to all things that you like. You probably do that anyway. And the discovery of it is there's there is some discovery, but it's not the most important part of Spotify. Shazam is a discovery platform more than Spotify. The interesting thing about Spotify is that um, the interesting um, quirk of the Spotify business model is that the best Spotify subscriber is, is a subscriber that listens to nothing. Because whenever you listen to a song on Spotify, they have to pay the music label. And the, and, the, and the songwriter, and they have to pay all those music rights. And it's costing them a lot of money, despite the fact that music artists and labels will tell you they're not getting a lot of money from Spotify. Actually, because a lot of Spotify users are big users, are active users, and because the subscription price isn't that high, it's a big outgoing, and it's, it's obviously um, directly proportional to consumption, but not directly proportional to subscriber uh, revenues, which is a slightly tricky business model to be in. And that's why I think they're investing so much, I, mean, I think, and other people think, they are investing so much in podcasts because podcasts are different. Podcasts are a one-off cost. You know, you have to pay a lot of money to Joe Rogan, but then you don't have to pay anything. So if a lot of people listen to Joe Rogan, then that's that's real, that doesn't cost you more money. And hopefully it's, it adds to the stickiness of your subscri subscriber base. However, podcast, the podcast market is much closer, closer to a Netflix model in the sense that not many people listen to podcasts more than once. So it'll be interesting to see what that does in terms of uh, content on Spotify, because it will shift the way users use the platform. It's quite interesting, isn't it, really? Because then you get this other dynamic where um, a podcast comes on the platform, like Joe Rogan, slightly right-wing leaning and then an artist like neil young who has some power despite the well noted fact that i don't like him but maureen absolutely loves him um can withdraw his services from spotify as a statement against joe rogan and that to me is just a very interesting new sort of politicizing uh my body of work if you like or, or, or using the power of my body of work to make a political statement which is something that spotify i guess are probably slightly concerned about because it, their whole model is based on you can listen to anything on Spotify. Well, yes, but I don't know how many subscribers they lost when Neil Young left. Uh, I suspect very few. I mean, Taylor Swift left Spotify and they didn't really lose that many subscribers. So that tells you that, the you know, it's a bit like YouTube. If it's not on there, I'll just listen to something else rather than if it's not on there, I'll switch to another music platform. Uh, yeah. because they have such a dominant place. And again, given that every time they play a Neil Young song, they have to pay Neil Young. You know, right. if you look at it from a purely commercially cynical point of view, that's money they don't have to pay anymore. I don't think that's how they look at it. But, you know, it's... it's it's. While I actually respect and think it was, it was a really brave thing to do, and I'm glad that he did it and Johnny Mitchell did it as well, uh, I don't think it was a very bad PR week for Spotify for sure. And God knows they've had those, uh, but that it was, it was, it was, I'm sure it had a negative PR impact, but in terms of actual numbers, I think it will have made zero difference. It was, it was insignificant. And even though I love Neil Young, uh, I, uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't switch off my Spotify premium uh, account. Um, instead I just put, put on a vinyl. Uh, and listen to him in my quiet uh, guitar room. So, so that's, hipster, that's what I did. That's what I did so. <laughs> but I know, I know, actually, it was insignificant. In fact, it was immaterial. It was absolutely immaterial. But going back to your uh, uh, the, the payment model, it is absolutely... If I recall, I think it's something like the 70-30%, and then within the 30% that stays with Spotify, I think Spotify then also needs to share that 30% with the artists. 
So right off the bat, it's 70% for the labels, but then Spotify still needs to look after the uh, the musicians, which I think that's a, that's pretty good going from a from a from a negotiation from a negotiating position of the labels. I think I think I think the labels have uh, really truly recovered uh, 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 in this sort of new platform sort of environment. I think they still have the upper hand. Um, yeah, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't I don't think uh, I don't think uh, Spotify suffered at all. You were talking about the business model, weren't you, Claire? About um, they've got to, th their subscription is fixed, and yet they have to pay out depending on usage. And that w w when the internet started to it started to become clear that the internet was going to be a, a way that that served content to people. I always thought it would be the amount of content you consumed that would that would determine how much you paid. And it is strange that it has moved to the subscription model. And I think I don't know. Maybe you have um, thoughts on whether that is sustainable or whether, um, you know, amount consumed will, will be the currency, if you like, of, uh, of what you pay for the, for the stuff you consume, whether, whether it's video or, or sound. And I definitely think, I think we touched on this last time, I think there is a, an, too much of a premium on recurring revenues. And that's, you know, that's why, because there was, uh, there, people were very down on advertising revenues, especially on tech platforms. And then a few organizations, Spotify, Netflix, started to show that you could have recurring consumer revenues. And it felt like the holy grail. Finally, we can make money off the internet. And so that became the only thing that counted. And, and recurring revenues have become such an indicator of financial health. And of course, you know, to some extent it is, but it's also it's also revenues that's very hard to grow exponentially. Uh, whereas um, revenues that are linked to the quantity of content, and it may not be consumer-driven revenues linked to the quantity of content, advertising revenues is also linked to the quantity of content consumed, you know, the number of people watching a video, which is the model that YouTube is, is following. You know, the more views a video gets, the more money is generated. And it's a model that Spotify is trying to build on Spodcast. I mean, that that has huge advantages because your revenues grow in line with your content cost, which is not the case with uh, recurring revenues. So, you know, the content industry has been a mixture of, of recurring revenues and, and advertising volume-driven revenues ever since it was invented, you know. So I would expect it to find some form of equilibrium, which I don't think it has found uh, in, in, in those models somewhere there. I don't think they'll go down the sort of meter meter the content because I think with uh, with advancements in technology as well and capacity I think I think the consumer will feel a bit disgruntled as well um, but also I think I think they'll just defer to an advertising model which is also volume led I think subscriptions is all you can eat I think is simplistic for 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 the consumer um, and we'll just simply switch that on and off um, and then if they want to suffer you know, um, uh, content with uh, advertising, they'll do so. But I, I, I don't, I don't think you can meter the content that way. Uh, although I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. There was also a, a stat that I read recently, and I can't remember where. Which is not very helpful. Which said that the more video platforms people subscribe to, the more tolerant they were on advertising on that platform, which I thought was very interesting. So if you're only subscribing to Netflix, then you don't, there's complete refusal of advertising. But the moment you start uh, subscribing to three or four or five platforms, the more tolerant you become that there will be advertising. And generally, there is more tolerance by viewers towards AVOD, towards advertising funded VOD. So I think we're going to start seeing more of that in the next few years. Gosh, that's quite um, counterintuitive. I'm, I'm subscribed to every platform under the earth because someone in the house wants something that's only available somewhere. And I'm, I get pretty annoyed with um, adverts anyway. Um, that's an enormous amount of ground we've covered. Um, who fancies a game of long short? Yay! Uh, Maureen puts her hand up and Claire says yay with, and I must use this phrase, uh, and uh, Claire says yes fiercely but with poise. I like that. Yes, which uh, is my yeah, positioning, that's... I think. My brand, in fact. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> but with poise. Yeah, like fall, yeah. It's like uh, Buzz Lightyear falling with style, yeah. whatever whatever you yes. call it. Um, long short, okay, we know the name of the game here. Long, basically, we like here to stay. Short, we don't like, and they're naughty for some reason. So I know what the answer to the first one is, but I want to hear it anyway. Scott Galloway. 
Short. I'm shorting. <laughs> Short. UMG. I, mean, I, I like. Ask me next. Yeah. yeah, I like I like Scott. I like Scott, but ask me next week and I'll be long yeah. on him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this week it's a short. <laughs> okay, that's fine. UMG. Long, long, long. If I was writing headlines for the Sun and they made like two hundred percent increase in revenues, the headline would clearly be UMG. OMG. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <Joe> <laughs> <Rogan>. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Joe Rogan. Long. Long. Got to yeah. be whether you must like be, him must or be content, not. You know, yeah, yeah. It's it's this is he's doing well. Neil Young. Long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, long term, definitely long. I think he's going to see a dip in revenues this year, but I think he can afford it. <laughs> I don't, that whiny, screechy voice, and he's about a million. But anyway, sorry, <laughs> Maureen. Um, I can't believe such a big man has such a little voice. But anyway, uh, Spotify. <laughs> Long. Yeah, I think it's long. I do. I do worry. They are very dependent on labels, as, as Maureen said, in their business models still. And I know they're working hard to change that. Uh, it'll be interesting. I long because they have such a dominant position at the moment. But yes. Also, well, the barriers to entry are high. Barriers yeah. to entry high. Apple has tried to, uh, you know, knock them off their perch. Unable to. You need a comprehensive uh, yeah, you know, catalog, and they've got. Good relationships with the labels, even though they have to pay for that. But yeah, what, what happened to Deezer? Is I, I can't, I couldn't imagine Deezer. Why oh, they entered the market? People in France use Deezer, which is really weird. Oh, oh yeah. yes, it's it's a, it's become quite a regional play. So I think definitely in France, I think maybe in Germany, but it's uh, oh. there are pockets of users of Deezer, but they are quite focused on certain regions. Deezer, okay. Deezer, um, exactly. Talk TV. Talk TV. Long. Yeah. You're longing. I don't know. I think it's going to be a struggle. I'm going to go with short. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not ready. I think to anything. Long. Yeah, anything the Murdochs back, they tend to sort of get it right, apart from MySpace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they no, tend I to just throw everything and resources at it. Yeah. But then if it doesn't work, they'll pull out pretty quickly. So we'll yeah. See. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the Met Gala. It's a short, I think, even though Blake Lively's dress was gorgeous, I think, one, they got the tone a bit wrong for the year, honestly, and two, they didn't really attract any A-list celebrities apart from Blake Lively. And that's the whole point, is to see really, really famous people. So it's a short for me. Short. <laughs> okay, short was... Was uh, I was going to say like Blake Lively's dress, but I never saw it. And finally, Pluto TV and Paramount. Long. Because I yeah. think they're, they're, they're launching at the right time when we're in a, in a squeeze, as subscriptions are being you know considered and advertising, uh, we're moving towards an AVOD model and Pluto's around that. So... And they've got some good content. So Pluto, yeah, I'm I'm long. Uh, I'm gonna just just for the sake of disagreeing, I'm going to say short. I think they don't have any name recognition, and I think building a new name in this environment is very difficult. So I think they will struggle a bit with that. But maybe wrong. What do I know? Good. I like a bit of contention because usually you get on yeah. just too well. It's it's kind of you know. <laughs> A bit of annoying, so it's nice for you too. But the trouble is, as soon as Claire disagrees, Maureen just smiles. It's very, very nice. <laughs> it's very, very genteel. <laughs> with a fierce undertone, let's say. Um, <laughs> wow, with that, uh, we've covered loads. I've learned lots. Uh, well, I usually do, but uh, that was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Um, um, and I look forward to uh, I look forward to the next one. Every time we get involved in these conversations, there's just so much to it as you peel back the layers, and you're exceptional at doing that. So I'm grateful. Thank you so much, and see you next time. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much, Oliver. Thank you, Oliver.